Well, it's great to be with you. I'm glad you survived the storm last night and brave whatever the weather's bringing our way today. We're without power here until about 6 a.m. this morning. Uh, and so we were wondering like, hey, what are we gonna do if it doesn't work out? And so those of you engaging online, really glad to have you with us as well. Um, but always good to be with you. I'd like us as we hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through the book of Romans, uh, I wanna start with a story, a true story about some friends of ours. In fact, this was from someone who spoke at Grace Church a number of years ago. His name is Richard Burr. And Richard, his story um, is that uh, he was a very successful business person, but he got into his late 30s and he began to realize that business success was leaving him feeling empty still, that there had to be something more to life. His marriage fell apart. Um, he was, he just, he felt like my life is beginning to unravel. It was about that time that a guy reached out to him and said, uh, hey, I'd like to invite you into this event. And, and in the process, Richard surrendered his life to Jesus and it was sort of a radical change for him. Like he began to grow by leaps and bounds and it just, it really was a life changer for his family. So he and his, his uh, he was remarried and, um, and then his kids, they began to go to this church. And his son, Jeff, um, was part of the youth group at this church, you know, sort of like finding his way as well, was a wrestler in high school, successful academically, things were going great. Went off to college and, and Jeff sort of derailed. He got in with the wrong group of friends. Uh, he began to, uh, he was, addiction took its toll. And he also wanted nothing to do with the faith of his dad and his stepmom. And so he cut his family and his faith in Christ right out of his life. So he drops out of college and, um, and he's out in LA. His dad and stepmom live in Pennsylvania and his dad visits him in LA. And after uh, a brief interaction, the son looks at his dad and Jeff says to his dad, he says, Dad, I never want to see you again. He said that, and he meant it to the extent that Jeff changed his last name. It was Richard Burr, his son Jeff Burr. Jeff changed his last name, didn't tell his dad what it was, so his dad could not track him down. It's crushing. And some of you, maybe it hasn't gone that far, but you say, I have a child or a family member who's sort of, stiff-armed me, they've left the faith that we had shared, and, and it's been heartbreaking for you. When you've helped to bring a child into the world, you've helped them take their first steps, you've maybe nursed them in your arms, you've thrown a ball with them, you've done all those things that as a parent do, and then to lose all contact and not be sure where your child is, you can imagine is crushing. Here's the question I wanna ask. Do we ever stray in a relationship with God to the extent where we reject him so completely that it's questionable whether we can ever make a U-turn? You might say, well, Jonathan, I think I know the answer to that. 
But on what basis in the scripture would you say, I believe that to be true? For some of you, it's not just a theoretical question. Um, it's deeply personal. Maybe you have a child who has rejected faith in Christ, or you have a child who, as an adult now, is making decisions that break your heart, and, and you wonder, like, man, I don't, I don't know if there's, like, any possibility. I just feel so remote for them to come back to relationship with Jesus. It might be someone who hasn't left your home. It might be someone you live with. It could, could be one of your family members. could be your spouse. And, and some of you, you long for, uh, um, you're in a, maybe if you're married, you long for a marriage where you say, we have a spiritual intimacy that's the basis for like our relationship, the foundation for our marriage. And, and your spouse wants really very little to do. Like they might walk through this, you know, the go through the motions, but you're like, they are not on the same page, and your heart hurts over that. What hope is there for someone who's walked away from Christ? Let me just say for a second, it might be you. Like, you might say, John, if I'm honest with you, I, I might even be listening today, but my heart has drifted. Like, I am not where I I used to be, and I, I, don't, I don't know what I believe. Like, I have, I'm filled with doubt, and I'm, maybe there's some kind of behavior in your life that you know, like, this is dishonoring to God, and, and I don't really know. Like, I, I ask the question, would God take me back? You know, based on what I've done, could he, will he? I want us to look at this question from the book of Romans in the time we have together and, and to see what does the Apostle Paul say? First, for a people in history, but I think we can apply the principle for us today as well. So let's turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 11, paper Bible, maybe you got the Bible app. Uh, if you didn't get notes on the way in, uh, those are at the tables before you come in. And those of you engaging online at our website, gracecma.org, you'll see bulletin, just click that, and our notes are right there at the beginning of the bulletin. And let me just say again to you, really glad to have you joining us uh, wherever you're engaging from. And, and those of you at Lorraine Correctional, really grateful to have you with us uh, too. Uh, welcome, glad we can dig into God's word together and see what he says about this. Let me just set the context for you in this way. Imagine that you're in this first century audience and you're hearing Paul's letter, you're about to hear for the, be read for the first time. That's how they did it. They didn't sort of just all sit down and have a copy. Like there was one scroll that came, it was Paul's letter, and, uh, and it's the first time that this letter is gonna be opened and read. So you're in the courtyard of a prominent Christian, um, and there's a lot of believers there in Jesus, and you know, there's fire going, you're sitting on your straw mat, you've just finished an amazing potluck. Do you think they had potlucks in the first century? I think potlucks have been around since cave people lived, right? And we're gonna have potlucks in heaven, they're amazing. And so they've had a meal together, because they, they love to, Christians always, we love to eat together. And, and there's an excitement in the air because Paul's letter is about to be read, and what you've been told is that it's the most thorough, systematic like explanation of the gospel how to get right, how to live right with God. What, what's the good news of what Jesus has done for us? So uh, they say, hey, we're gonna read the letter. And so one of the leaders in your church uh, opens up the scroll and begins to read. And, and you begin to hear what the apostle Paul says. And in chapter one, verse one, Paul says this. He says, this letter is from Paul, Jesus Christ's slave, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. That's how the letter begins. He says, I'm, he identifies himself. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. 
I've been called to be an apostle. That is to sent one to go and to, and to share the good news. And, and that's exactly what he does. And it's an incredible letter reminding you of all that Christ has done. That first he starts, and you'll see this uh, outline that he starts with uh, a diagnosis, Paul does, of this terminal disease, a spiritual disease that has us hopelessly in its grip. And this infection of sin left untreated has deadly consequences, separation from God now and, and in the afterlife. And so then Paul launches into a section, chapter three, how God has provided a way to deal with the infection of sin, how you and I can be free of that. And you listen to Paul in this crystal clear description of how God, his costly solution, he sends his only son, Jesus, to die in your place. In fact, there's this real turning point that in chapter three, verse 20, it says, but now, like there's this terrible infection of sin, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. In other words, something from, from heaven down to earth, like God has given us a way to be right with him. And he talks about this way that we can have salvation. And then the next portion, chapter six to eight, you see up there, it's a sanctification, like how do I become more like Jesus? And what we read about is how the spirit of Jesus, when Jesus comes back from death, the same spirit that brought Jesus from the grave is the same spirit, says in Romans 8, that lives within us. Helps us to follow Jesus, to become more like Jesus, to, that he knows you by name, that you can trust him and follow him and have a relationship with him. And Paul uh, just talks about this. And, and so you're sitting there in the courtyard. And they turn to what we would call chapter 9. And they didn't have chapters in the beginning and verses. We've added those later to help us follow along. But as you're hearing, you begin to wonder, because you're Jewish, let's say, and you look around, and you see that most of the people around you are, uh, they're non-Jews, they're Gentiles. And, and you're grateful for them, but there's this glaring absence of your Jewish relatives. Your brother thinks you flat out lost your mind to trust in Jesus as the Messiah. Your mother's furious with your newfound faith in Christ. And you wonder, you go, we're like the chosen people. Why have so many of my Jewish friends and my own family turned their back? Why have they rejected? I mean, we're, we're like, we're the, I mean, the Messiah was promised to us. Like, we were given the Ten Commandments. The prophets came and spoke to us. We built the temple for Pete's sake. Like, like uh, so much was entrusted to us, and yet, most of my fellow Jews have just flat out rejected Jesus. We've grieved the heart of God. And you wonder, will he take us back as a people? If my family, my friends want to come back to Jesus, would he overlook their ridicule of the cross, their defiance, their mistreatment of other Christians? It's the question that they wondered at that time, like, okay, so... God has solved the problem of sin. He's filled us with the spirit. But what about the nation of Israel? What about people who, who were in the family and now are, are not? And it leads to the big question, will God take a prodigal back? It's a question that Paul decisively answers here in chapter 11. He sort of drives a stake in the ground and he says, friends, here's the promise that you can count on, that God never, ever turns anyone away. He saves every person who trusts his undeserved kindness. So let's see how Paul talks about this for the people then, the citizens of Israel, and for us today. Chapter 11, verse 1, we'll read the first several verses. Paul writes, 
Now, I'm reading the New Living Translation. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Like, it just puts the question out there. Paul writes, of course not. I myself am an Israelite. In other words, I, like, I'm part of Like, he hasn't rejected me. I'm a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, 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 Paul. I actually have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works, for in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. And then drop down to verse 11. He asks a similar question to verse 1. He says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? And Paul says what? Of course not. So let me ask, is God finished with Jewish prodigals, with the nation of Israel? In fact, is God finished with any prodigals? And Paul would say what? Absolutely not. Some of you remember there was a phrase that several months ago when we were looking at earlier chapters in Romans that we looked at this little Greek phrase that Paul uses on a number of occasions. And like in Romans chapter six, he says, should we keep on sinning to highlight the riches of God's grace? I mean, it didn't make sense, but, but people were actually saying that. Like, if I, the more I sin, the more God has to be gracious to me, which shows just how gracious he is, so I should just keep on sinning. And Paul goes, you actually think that he goes, meganoita, meganoita, certainly not, God forbid. Would you say that Greek phrase with me, ready? Meganoita. You can tell people, I, I speak a little bit of Greek, you know, just, you know, not a lot, but meganoita. And Paul incorporates that phrase here again when he asks the question twice. In verse one, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, the Jews? And the answer in the Greek, say it aloud with me, is what? Meganoida, and again in verse 11, he says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? And the question again is, Meganoita, God forbid, of course not. And what Paul is saying is that, yes, the people of Israel, and we could say for us today, we have people we know who have strayed, who are far from God. And Paul says, do you ever stumble to the point where you go, there's no recovery left. The patient is dead. And Paul says, no. No, you're never beyond the grace of God. If we could summarize a few of the things that Paul wants us to remember here, and if you have a prodigal in your life. First, this. Remember that God has welcomed thousands of prodigals back to himself. Paul talks about the time when Elijah, the prophet, has a pity party and complains God, I'm the only one following you. And what does God tell him? He goes, uh, no, actually there are thousands of others who are part of my family. Don't doubt the riches of my grace. 
friends, what, what, what God is saying is, is Elijah, Paul, all of us, I am at work in far more people than what you know. I may seem distant. The person you love and you care about may seem so far, but I, I'm working on them. My eyes are on the horizon. Remember the most famous parable that Jesus tells is the parable that there's this son who is growing up, thinks he knows more than mom and dad, and he's like, hey, I'm gonna go off and I wanna live life the way I choose. And so he takes whatever money has coming, and he goes off and he's like, I'm gonna live free. I wanna do whatever I wanna do. I have no rules, you know? I, and for a while, it's great, right? Sin in the beginning, and living life on your own terms, however you please, is actually there's you know, some pleasure to that and some... But pretty quickly, this guy starts to run out of money. His life begins to crash. He winds up in a job he hates. And he's in this job and he's like, my friends are gone. I hate this job. It'd be better if I were back at home. And it says that he came, what? He came to his senses. And he begins the journey, but he's like, what if I could even be like one of my dad's employees, a servant? But it says that his dad, back at home, his dad's eyes are are regularly looking where? Over the, at the horizon, over the crest of the hill, waiting to see if he can recognize the gate of his son beginning to walk home. And one day the dad looks up and he's like, it's my son. And, it, and you just see, Jesus says, this is the heart of the father, that he's full of grace and mercy, even when we've spurned him and rejected him. So number one, take heart that God's heart is for people who have walked away from him. He, he is always willing to welcome home those who have strayed. Second, Paul reminds us not to underestimate the powerful influence of a legacy of holiness. Um, how exactly this works, I'm not real sure, but I wanna read a few verses that what Paul goes into here. And, and, and just to say, what kind of, how does this motivate us? Drop down to verses 15 and 16 of Romans chapter 11, and here's what Paul writes. He says, for since their rejection, that is the people of Israel, their rejection meant God offered salvation to the rest of the world. As you think back to John chapter 1 verse 12, it says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not, what? Receive him. So his, his own people reject him, and it says this, so God offered salvation to the rest of the world. Their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who are dead. In other words, they were spiritually dead. It seemed like there was nothing left. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. That can be like, whoa, what in the world is he saying there? He talks about dough and he talks about a tree. He's saying this, he's saying, if you have a portion of dough that, and then it can spread throughout the whole, or the tree is the one he talks about more. And what Paul is saying is this, he's saying, um, the root of the tree of Israel, what he's talking about in this chapter, these people, the remnant of Israel is the title of the chapter, that the root of the tree is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? And then you have these branches that begin to come out, the 12 tribes of Jacob, of Israel, and then all these other people in the nation of Israel, and generation after generation, and, and they're the people of God. And Paul says, now recently, some of the Jews have been cut off from the tree. Their branches have been lopped off. Why? Because of their failure to accept Jesus. 
And he says that this, by the same token, a lot of Gentiles, non-Jews, have been branches that have been grafted in. If you read the chapter, you'll see they've been grafted into the tree. And uh, because they've accepted, they put their trust in Jesus. So what's interesting is what Paul writes in verse 16. He says, and since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, in other words, the roots of the tree, he says their children will also be holy, and the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be holy too. In other words, you can have a powerful influence on your loved ones by the way that you live. The spiritual life in those roots, in some way, like the sap, begins to trickle up and get to the branches of the tree. Some might go, you know, Jonathan, it's interesting, but I think it's talking just about Israel here. Like, I don't think it's talking about anybody else apart from Israel. Turn over one book to the right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is talking here about singleness and marriage, and he says something similar, and he's not just talking about Jewish people. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, here's what Paul writes. He says, for the Christian wife, verse 14, brings holiness to her marriage. And the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not have a godly influence, but now they are set apart for him. If you said, Jonathan, how exactly to explain that? I would say, I'm not sure the Bible is really clear on this. It, what we know it does not mean, it doesn't mean that, that my children or anybody's children are saved by our faith. Children aren't, aren't they, they, they don't get on the coattails of Grandma, Grandpa, or Aunt Susie, or Grandma, you know, or whatever. Uh, they, every one of us has to put our trust in Christ. No one goes to heaven on the faith of their parents or any other family member, but there's some kind of powerful co connection here. Paul is saying both in Romans 11 and in 1 Corinthians 7, between my faith and that of my family, the branches of the family tree. That's motivating, isn't it? Even if there's no guarantee that your children are going to become Christians, if you are, but it does motivate us to say, God, I want to have a walk with you, a spiritual life that's contagious, that, that other people look at me, and, and somehow the influence of my legacy will impact that of my children and grandchildren or cousins or nieces and nephews, if you don't have children, or whatever. He says, it happened for Israel, and I believe Paul's saying, it can happen for us today as well. So first of all, he says, remember, God is in the business. He loves prodigals. He's in the business of bringing prodigals home. Secondly, live a life that, uh, of godly influence. And then next, in number three, you know, so if you turn back to Romans chapter, we'll go all the way back to Romans chapter 10. Uh, here's how Paul begins the chapter earlier than the one we're looking at today. He says this in chapter 10, verse one. He says, dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my what? My prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Paul is saying, I, I, I pray. Some of you who have a person in your family who's walked away from the Lord, you know that one of the, the things that you do, you go, God, I don't have anything else I can do, but pray. And Paul says in places like Philippians 1, he tells his fellow believers that he's writing to, he says, night and day I remember you in my prayers. And I'm sure he prayed for his prodigal fellow citizens in that way too. He says, I, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God. So Paul's example, number three in your notes, it says this, pray that, pray that people who've walked away from God will come to their senses, like the prodigal. That they'll realize how empty life is apart from Jesus, so they, they will reach out to him. Let me tell you a story and then drop down to a verse here in this chapter. <clears throat> Mary and I have an out-of-state friend who called us at one point. 
really in desperate need, in tears, and Mary answers the phone and, and is uh, talking to this friend, and this friend begins to say, my life is like unraveling. Uh, there's health issues, there's relationship issues, there's the workplace not going well, like life financially, otherwise just falling apart. So Mary's listening, and oh my goodness, you know, and all that, and, and the person is just, and Mary then pauses, there's a pause in the conversation, she goes, I might be partly responsible for what you're going through right now. And they're like, you live like hundreds of miles away, how would that be of any possibility? And Mary said, well, Jonathan and I have been praying that God would do whatever it takes to bring you to a relationship with him. Whatever it would mean in your life. And Mary and I still pray that way for people. God, you bring either such difficulty or so much blessing, whatever you know will be the key to unlock the door, that, that this person's like, you've been praying that for me? You're responsible? No, they didn't, they didn't get mad at it. I'll tell you the rest of the story in a second. But if you drop down here to verse 32 in chapter 11, <clears throat> listen to what Paul says here, really interesting. He says, God has imprisoned all people in their disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. They're imprisoned in their disobedience. Now, when you and I break free of a relationship with Christ, we often think, well, we're like, man, now I'm free. I'm no longer bound by all that Christian stuff. And, you know, the, and what we don't realize is that we are even more bound and imprisoned by our disobedience. That's the verbiage that Paul uses there. That we begin to have addictions and we were imprisoned to wanting to be acceptable to other people or we, we want them to like us or we, we have dreams that, and we have anything else that's at the center of our life outside of Jesus can quickly be taken away. Our selfish decisions. So if you know someone who's walked away from Jesus, pray for them. Pray that they'll be miserable until they come to their senses like the prodigal son and they'll go, why am I living like this? I, I have nowhere else to turn and that they'll come to a place of humble surrender to Jesus. And then pray that they'll see the truth and the wonder, the beauty of who God is, his amazing kindness and mercy and wisdom and glory. This chapter ends with um, a doxology. It's called a sort of this outburst of praise. Oh, the depths of the riches, you know, and just the wonder of who God is that they'll see him. That's what happened to our friend that Mary talked to on the phone. That person ended up making a giant U-turn, put their faith in Jesus, and today they're walking with the Lord. It's been a great story. And uh, friends, God is able. He's able, right? He can reach into the life of anybody, even when they feel so far from us. May we never forget our salvation is all mercy. It's how we're accepted in the first place. If you look at verse 20, we can never do enough to earn grace or deserve it. Paul says in verse 20, he says, you're there, like you're in the family because you believe, like it's a gift because of your faith in Christ. You didn't earn it, you didn't achieve it. Remember someone has said, how does a turtle get on top of a fence post? I think we got a picture here. How does that happen? Because someone put it there, right? You're like, I don't know if I'd wanna be like in that place right there. You know, friends, it's the same for every person who is a part of God's family, that we've been picked up by somebody else in God's grace, 
and have been snatched from, you know, and the, Psalms, the psalmist says, I, I was in miry clay. I was stuck, and he, you picked me up, and you set my feet on solid ground. Very simply, you, you don't get to a place of being in God's family apart from his grace. Like, it's just his, his sheer mercy that he would say, I'm going to take you and pick. So what does that mean? That means there's no room for spiritual pride. There's no room for pride for us to look at someone else and go, oh man, grateful I'm not like that person, a despicable sinner. Look at what they're doing with their life. Who does that sound like? The Pharisee, right? Jesus tells a story about that person as well. There's no room for spiritual pride when we see somebody else. We just go, God, the grace you've shown to me, I'm asking you to show to that person as well. God, would you be merciful to them? Friends, one verse here, and then I want to close with, uh, finish up the story I told in the beginning. Verse 22. God is severe to those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. What's the message for us here? Stay close in your relationship with Jesus. He saved you by grace. He's been merciful to you if you've put your trust in him. And stay close. He's kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. In other words, keep on obeying him. If you're a Christian, remember how you got where you are. It's all mercy. The same mercy that God wants to show to people who are far from him and he wants to bring back. Well, let me tell you the rest of the story about Jeff, Richard Burr's son. Maybe you've read it because it's written up in the book, Praying Your Prodigal Home. But here's the story in brief. After years of almost no contact, one morning the phone rings, Richard's phone rings. And it's his son, now 38 years old, asking his dad, who was living in Pennsylvania, if his dad would come to see him in Denver. Jeff had nearly bled to death a few days earlier, and one of his requests to the hospital staff was, can you track down my father's number? I want to give my father a call and see if he'll visit me. So Richard and his wife get this phone call. Jeff knows he's dying and he knows it, and they're on a plane 90 minutes later after the phone call. Not sure what they were in for. It had been 15 years since they had seen their son and stepson. They prayed most of the three and a half hours from Pennsylvania to Denver, wondering what they would say like when they saw Jeff like in person. Once they arrived in Denver, they didn't have to wonder for very long. When they entered their son's room at the medical center, Jeff greeted them with tears of joy. Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Dad, I love you. I love you. And God did a miracle of spiritual and relational healing that just 24 hours earlier seemed absolutely impossible. And there with family, Jeff's dad and stepmom surrounding him, he prayed for God's mercy and forgiveness. And in that moment, Richard and, his, and Jeff's stepmom had, they saw their son like transform, like, and three days later, Jeff was released from his physical suffering and graduated to heaven at the age of 38. Did God welcome him home? Absolutely. You know, there, there may be some dads, if Jeff had called a particular dad, dad might have said, you know, son, um, 
that ship has sailed. Like when you dropped our family name, you haven't been in touch with us in 15 years for pizza. I mean, it's, no, I, I mean, I've got a lot going on right now. I've got other people in my family. It's not gonna work out for me to visit you. Would a loving father ever think about saying something like that? And Paul would say in his two Greek words, what? Meganoita. And think of God, even if an earthly dad could do that. God the Father. Would God himself ever say to the one that you love, you know, I think they've strayed a little bit too far, a little bit too much baggage to be part of the family. You think God would ever say that to someone who calls out to him? Meganoita. And if it's you, can I just say it again? If you feel your heart drifting and you're wondering, I don't know, have I done something? Is there something in my past that makes me beyond the point of return? God is a merciful God. If he can rescue Jeff and the Apostle Paul, who's known as the chief of what? Sinners. And if he can rescue an entire nation, Israel, which we don't know exactly how that's going to happen, but he says at some point all of Israel is going to be saved. I, I, I I, we're going to look back from heaven and say, okay, that's how that happened. But God can take people who have been defiant in the rejection of him, including you and me, and the people we love, and he says, if they, I will welcome anybody home. Just a step toward me, and, and, and I will, and the welcome signs go up, and he says, my son, my daughter who is lost has been found, who is dead is now alive. Friends, he knows exactly where your loved one is today, spiritually, even geographically. He knows what it will take. Let's trust him together. Here's what I'd like us to do. I'm gonna invite you. I, I, I imagine a lot of us, we have someone in our mind that we're like, oh yeah, I've got a person whose name immediately came to my mind or maybe there's three or four people. I'm gonna invite you just as we pray to put your hands out. If you have someone you're bringing to Jesus and say, Lord, I have representative the fact I'm bringing this person to you. God, I, I just, I'm asking you today, Lord, would you just, would you bring them home? I'd like to pray for these ones. You ready? Father in heaven, you know every one of these people in our hands. You know them by name. Not only do you know them, Lord, you see them. You hear them, and you're ready with your endless grace to forgive. And so, Lord, we entrust these ones to you. We pray that you would give them such dissatisfaction with what the world offers that they'll say, I have nowhere else to turn. Lord, that if they used to walk with you, You'll bring a song to their mind about you that they can't get out of their heads, or they'll bring a scripture back, or a longing just to be, to know you, the God of the universe, once again. Lord, we pray you'd put people in their path who love you and have contagious faith. God, we don't know what it will take. Maybe it's going to be a, the blessing that is overwhelming to them, and they go, that's God. Or they see the beauty of nature. Or maybe, Lord, is going to be suffering that comes their way, but Lord, we know that you're the shepherd who leaves the 99 behind and goes after the one. And so Lord, we, we just pray that you would reach into the lives of these ones that we love 
And we join with Paul where he says, my heart's desire, my prayer to God is that these ones will be saved. Lord, we pray that for these ones we love. And Lord, we pray for, for the people of, of Israel, for Jewish people dispersed around the world. God, we don't know how Romans 11 is gonna be fulfilled, but we just, we thank you that anybody who's turned away from you, you can bring them home because of your grace. And so Lord, we lift these ones up to you and we trust that you love them even more than we do. You're a faithful God and we trust you. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray and everyone said together, amen, amen.